about a month ago, we spoke to Dr. Alex DiGiacomo as she was at the halfway point of her journey across Canada. In July, she got on a bicycle in Vancouver, BC. In September, she got off that bicycle in Halifax, Nova Scotia. 42 days of cycling took her across Canada to raise awareness for youth mental health and the barriers kids face in this country to receiving high quality mental health care. As she entered each province, she chose a new charity in that province to be the recipient of the money she raised along the way. Starting with a goal of $10,000, she quickly raised that money and raised the goal to $50,000. She's super close and if you want to help her get there, the link to donate is in the show notes of today's episode. I was really keen to speak to Alex again now that the trip itself is over and to talk about the amazing Canadian community that she met, inspired and actually created herself along the way. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is our podcast, Mindful. Well, normally we start these by having uh, our guest introduce themselves, but our listeners are familiar with you already. Uh, Dr. Alex DiGiacomo. Uh, am I saying that correctly? It was perfect because usually people say DiGiacomo and you got it exactly right. And it's so, it's so wonderful to be back here, Eric. I... I had so many people listen to the podcast and the, they had the same feedback, which was that you were a great interviewer. And my experience was actually, I felt like I understood the story better after I talked to you about it. So thank you very much. Well, I, I appreciate that. that. Those are very kind words. I just <laughs> finished doing an episode with doctor at UBC, uh, goes by Jay-Z, about homelessness and uh, cash transfers to homeless people. And they did a study on this and so i did the interview and i thought okay i think that went really well and then a couple of days later one of the podcasts i listened to which is why is this happening podcast with chris hayes in the u.s interviewed her a second time and i thought to myself ah all those questions those are the ones i should have asked that's what i wish i had done so uh, you know i'm glad that uh i'm glad that you think so because uh and i'm glad that you're back thank you so much for doing this again now that the whole journey is over oh it's it's so great to be back and and there you go it just goes to show we all have some insecurities there you go now i'll have to listen to both of those with uh (laughs) jay-z yes yes for sure now we talked to you when you were halfway through the trip previously was the second half easier or harder than the first we drove back from nova scotia and we went on a vacation for a week a little while ago drove back in one day and i found that the last two hours of the trip <laughs> were by far the hardest just driving you know trying to get home and it felt like a million years trying to get there is that what you experienced like the last little while of the trip or was it exciting you're almost there and uh, it passed really quick okay you know what eric you caught me at the very end of a very positive stretch Okay, so I think it was right after I talked to you, things really went downhill because I was in, was I in Thunder Bay? I think I was in Thunder Bay. Yes, uh, around there, yeah. I was around Thunder Bay, yeah. And so what I discovered for the next two weeks after our interview is that Ontario is very large. It is. It's very, very, very large. And it felt never ending to me. And the terrain along Lake Superior, although it is, I think, some of the most stunning terrain in the entire country, was so challenging, not just 
because of the elevation. And so you, cause you think, oh, BC is the mountains. And then, you know, once you get that over with, it's going to be just some hills, it'll be fine. But the, the elevation there was, was brutal. And the road conditions in Ontario were so terrible that I was based, I was so hypervigilant really the entire time because there's either there's no shoulder or there's a very tiny rocky shoulder that feels quite unsafe. So mm. for parts of it, I was able to take a really remote highway. I can't remember if it was the 11 or the 17, one of those. So that was good because at least there wasn't traffic, but still it's completely remote. There's no reception. We, I stayed in like a cabin. It was all very rural and I am from the city and that was just not like, it was not my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> remote cabin in the woods along the way, uh, along the journey. That's, uh, I did not expect to hear you say that that's where you'd stayed at some point. Well, I had to, I had no choice because I think the other option was the busier highway, which I think is the 17, but that one, it really has no shoulders. So I think it was around when I saw you that on Instagram, we did this poll and the majority of folks thought that I should get a pool noodle for my bike because it kind of, demonstrates to drivers that okay you can't get too close to this bike because there's this pool noodle sticking out and i needed that the whole way because there's just no shoulder and so and some cars actually touched it and so had i stayed on the 17 the entire time it would have been it would have been two weeks of that instead i only had about like eight days of it i think this pool noodle idea there's some psychology to that too right a lot of environmental psychologists are the people behind those optical illusions that make it look like a road is narrower so cars drive slower and you know those we have a cardboard cutout of a little girl playing in our neighborhood. So the cars drive slower because it looks like a kid's going to run out in the road and that kind of thing. I think that's part of the domain of psychology as well. That, But you're saying that not everyone paid attention to it and actually touched it. That's got to be freaky if you're dry, if you're biking and a, and a car comes close enough to touch your pool noodle. Exactly. Well, I like the research that you're citing. It's sort of related to my my PhD, which is like the mere presence of some kind of symbol like that is enough to change people's behavior. But I didn't have enough time to do a lit search on this, right? And I'm more comfortable when there's data to support my decisions. There's no data really to tell you whether you should have a pool noodle or not. And then I thought, actually, it might backfire because... Like, okay, yes, people are more likely to hit the noodle than me, but do I really want a car to be in contact with something so close to me? So I was not confident about the decision, but I think in the end, you know, it was fine. It was very freaky, very, very freaky to have it be t- It wasn't only a couple times that a car touched it, but it, yeah, it was not comfortable. And then what else happened? There was something else in Ontario. Yeah, it just kept dragging on. And then Quebec was also a little bit of a nightmare to be honest with you so i think the second half of the trip was was a lot rougher than the first half so the infrastructure then is better as far as you go west it becomes better uh, across canada then i would say so and I, i met this wonderful woman robin who is on her second cross country trip um she's much more seasoned much more expert she's a real cyclist you know even though ontario is the richest province weirdly ironically they have the worst shoulder so she agreed with me which made me at least feel a little bit better about that but yeah as you go west they get better well i'm sure doug ford listens to this podcast so uh infrastructure investment doug let's do it uh it's important (laughs) yeah And I wonder, right, you just referred to somebody else, Robin, as a real cyclist. Can you not 
consider yourself to be a real cyclist now that you have cycled all the way across Canada? I mean, you, you must be able to claim that title now. Excellent question. As we speak, my bike is on the East coast of Canada. So I don't know that I have plans to ever get back <laughs> on that bike. Um, I guess I can, yeah, I guess we can call me a real cyclist, but I, I, as I've gotten to know cyclists, they, I think they have a lot of pride about their sport and they love all the gadgets and they, they love to learn about it. And they would not leave their bike on the other coast. I think they would take it with them on a bike box on the plane, which I did not do. So it's still up for debate. <laughs> they probably wouldn't. And I remember uh, knowing a few people uh, when I was in high school, especially who were really into cycling. And uh, I think one of them went on to do some major cycling events and that sort of thing. But, you know, they would tell me about their bikes and I'd go, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, oh, there's this new crankshaft that it only costs $1,700 and it make, it's the weight of a sandwich. And it's really, you know, and I go, OK, neat. I I don't know what you're saying, but all the gadgets and the things and, you know, so you're, you have not become one of those people. You've not become one of the gadget up your bike type people. And you know what? I don't know that I ever will be that person. Although I admire the passion. I respect the passion. Absolutely. But I don't know. So I actually did the first, my first exercise was yesterday, which was three weeks after the bike ride ended. I think it's been three weeks. Um, and I played pickleball. So for the first yeah. time, and so I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'll probably get back on the bike at some point because maybe this will be not an annual thing, but the, it might have a shelf life beyond what I did. We'll see. I've met some people who are saying, Oh, well maybe I can continue break the cycle by cycling across Canada next year. So anyway, there, there are lots of things, you know, lots of possibilities. Let's put it that way. Well, that'd be great. And your bike currently on the East Coast, where on the East Coast? Is it like in a museum of some kind? Uh, can people come and visit it and take a look at the bike that made the trek across Canada? Uh, where is it on the East Coast? And how come you didn't bring it back with you? That's so funny that you say that because I was actually thinking of selling it and donating the proceeds to the the charity to break the cycle because we're still trying to make up the last 10,000. Um, it's actually with my parents. My parents were kind enough to store it because it's very difficult to transport bikes. I didn't know that, but you have to get a, a special bike box. Those are very expensive and you have to dismantle it. As we know, I can't even change a tire on it. So I did get two flats. No, I got three flats within four days. Within a span oh, yeah. of four days, I got three flats. Isn't that interesting so i can't even change that so i can't dismantle it put it back together so it was just easier to leave it to leave it with them although i did want to tell you eric i don't know if you if you knew this um from instagram but i did go a week completely solo so i i packed up you know things on my bike and i was completely what is it called unsupported um yes so that was quite an adventure i saw that and i saw i thought you know that must slow you down having that much gear to carry on the bike and make it that much more difficult. In the end, you have no support. You've taken all this stuff with you. Your your gear is all packed on the bike and you're being slower as a result. Uh, what What's that like? It was awful. Psychologically, physically, it was just... And I, and I have to do some reflection about why did I feel I needed to do that? Because I think, I think it was, I sort of thought, oh, it's not... Re it's not real 
unless you're doing it completely on your own, which is, that is not true, but that's sort of what was going on in my head. And I don't know if you've ever tried cycling with 40 additional pounds, but it is not fun. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that's when I got my first flat tire. So it was slow. It's a totally different sport. It's very lonely. You, you, there's a lot more mental load because you have to know exactly where the stops are. And when you're in a rural part of the country, those are few and far between. And that's consequential when it's 40 degrees and you're running out of water. So at that right. point it felt like, okay, am I on survivor? Like is now, is this is a totally different kind of situation here. So yeah, it, it kept me on my toes because I felt like, okay, actually the consequences of me miscalculating something could actually be serious. So at that point, you you didn't need the support car, but you should have had a film crew following you uh, just to create a reality show over the course of that week. Oh, it, you know, and I don't know that I would want that publicly aired because you know, like there was one day I was, I was pretty beside myself. Although actually I did, I think I did record some for, for Instagram because by that point I was in Quebec and you're not allowed to ride on the highways in Quebec. I didn't know that. I, I didn't know, know that. that either. So I started off on the highway and, and, and I got all these honks. So in the rest of Canada, you not, most people don't honk at you. Like most people are very kind and they just kind of go around and Quebec, everybody was honking at me. And I thought, okay, they're just either very passionate or they don't want me on the road. And then I found out you're not supposed to be on the road because there's this very intricate series of bike trails that really you're supposed to be on. So then I transitioned to one of those. And this is so great because one of the people I met on Instagram volunteered to map my routes for me, which was so kind of her because it's not my forte navigation. But before I had her, I did my own. And these paths that start out beautiful, smooth, paved paths, can immediately on a dime turn into the rockiest terrain you've ever seen in right. the middle of a cornfield where you can't escape. So I had to walk about five or six kilometers with all of these packs and my bike, because you can't traverse that on a skinny little road bike. So nightmare. Wow. That, that does sound like a nightmare. And I was thinking about navigation too, because, you know, as I said, we, we just drove back to Ottawa from Nova Scotia after a vacation and we get up in the morning, it's six in the morning. We're going to make the whole drive in one day. It's going to be 14 something hours and no problem. And I just punch Ottawa into the GPS and go, go. And so we leave Wolfville and about an hour and a half, two hours later, I realized we're not going the right way at all. And the GPS has decided that, oh, it doesn't care that the ferry costs 120 bucks or that we don't have passports. It's going to take us on a ferry and then it's going to take us through Maine so that we're going to have to go through the U.S. because that will save us four minutes on our overall trip. Well, it ended up costing us an extra four hours because we kept doing the wrong thing and just following the GPS blindly. So you really do have to plan these things out a little bit better than just hitting the button and go on your GPS. What's that like on a bike? I mean, can do you have a GPS telling you in your ear, well, turn left here, turn right here, the next path is coming up? Or do you kind of have to have a map well ahead of time and stop every now and then, take a look at that map? Where am I going? Thank you for commiserating on the navigational struggles. I, and yeah, nice to know it even happens on a car. So I think this trip has 
shown me some gaps in technology for cyclists. And I am shocked that there isn't an easier way to route from point A to point B. So I typically use Google Maps, but in the cycling community, there are very strong feelings that you should not do that because Google Maps, you'll end up kind of like like what happened to me in a cornfield in bad terrain. So you're not supposed to do that. So then I had a Garmin computer on my bike. My relationship with this Garmin computer um, is fraught <laughs> because <laughs> it has multiple times rerouted me the absolutely the wrong way. But then when Emily, the um, person I met on Instagram, helped me, she somehow managed to send the map to the Garmin computer so that it would give me instructions in my ear. And then that ended up being better. So I don't know, honestly, I don't know how she did it because that was the most reliable, except for it still doesn't know about road closures or bike path closures. So there were still like, even with excellent planning, because she, she spent hours on these routes, honestly, like she spent, I think two hours a night for the last 10 days um, making this route. And there were still times where it it backfired because things were closed. So. Wow. Yeah. I guess maybe that really speaks to our uh, dismissal of cyclists as a whole. You would think that cyclists would have that kind of technology. I've been on a golf course with a guy who had a little GPS device and every golf course in the entire world was on this GPS device. And no matter where you were, no, no matter how far out of bounds you hit it, it would tell you exactly how far you are to the pin on the next hole and where to go and all these things. You know, somebody took the time to do that, but hasn't done that for cyclists. That's kind of a, that's kind of a disappointing commentary on our society writ large, I think. There you go, Eric. I gotta, I gotta find out who these golfers are because that's some initiative and follow through. I respect that, and I wonder if there could be some collaboration between golfers and cyclists because there's, there's some money to be made somewhere here with helping people navigate for sure. There has to be. Actually, I think I talked to one of the guys who created that device, yeah. and it really was just an excuse for him to go out and play every golf course that he could possibly find. It was sort of like the Google Maps did with the cars where they drove everywhere in the world that they could and took all the photos and that sort of thing. Same kind of thing with with the golfers. So you need cyclists. Maybe if next time somebody uh, does this uh, break the cycle trip across Canada, they bring the camera with them and follow all the routes. And, you know, maybe there is some money to be made there. I think there, there's got to be. There's got to be. Tell me about the grand finale. Uh, where was the end point and what was that like? Were there people there to greet you? Was there a big celebration? What was the first thing you did when you were done? So, Eric, the finale was, in one word, very dramatic. Okay? It was very dramatic because um, Hurricane Lee was approaching Nova Scotia the same day that I was finishing. And so I arrived in St. John, New Brunswick, which was the second last stop. And this was heartwarming. I I might actually cry when I say this, but I, and I don't, so there was this woman, Kim Hennessy, who had found my Instagram account and uh, had been in touch with this other friend of a friend of a friend of a friend and they together rallied their whole community and they planned a party for me upon arrival in St. John, New Brunswick, which was the second last stop. And that was just, I was just so surprised and shocked. And it's really a, been a theme of this whole trip, really, that 
it's the strangers actually and people I've just met that that made it as special as it really as it was and so that that's something I'll be thinking about for a while because you don't really think that that's possible like that that people you've just met can have such an impact on you but it was a consistent theme from the prep um, all throughout until the end so we thought that that might have been the finale because the hurricane was coming. We didn't know if I'd actually be able to do the last stretch from Digby, Nova Scotia to Halifax. So then I took a ferry from St. John to Digby and then I got up super early on the last day and essentially tried to out, out cycle the hurricane. Um, and it was the longest ride of the trip. It was 211 kilometers and it was the most terrifying day I, I i i have to say and by that point luckily somehow like i had assembled this team just came together on instagram this woman joanne from quebec was um booking the hotels for me and this girl emily who i'd met was doing the routes and then an old friend gary was in my ear helping me he was basically my gps because at that in nova scotia no offense to people in nova scotia but those highways are awful cyclists they're so awful and so terrifying because everyone goes so fast like way faster than anywhere else in canada and there's no shoulder right so so that it was there was probably uh 30 to 40 kilometers on that last day where it's the kind of fear where actually things feel calm because you know that you can only focus on one thing, which is breathing. And then another thing, which is pedaling. And I was just so terrified. So, and then Gary was in my ear kind of helping me. So we got through that, but then the wind started and the rain started. So there was about 70 or 80 kilometers that were in really bad weather. And because it was so far, I actually had to ride at night. So I'm, then I'm on the highway and it's dark and it's raining and I'm lit up like a Christmas tree and then Kim, who I again just met, who threw me the party, is now also in my ears along with Gary and my mom, because at that point the sport car was back. And so we're just trying to navigate to Halifax. And in the end, like somehow I got there at like 10 p.m. or 9, 9.45, 10 p.m. It's pouring rain. We're in the Halifax Harbor. I dip my wheels <laughs> in the water. The thing that was just so sweet is Jess Jans, who is the person who I met back in March, who really was the one who convinced me that this, that I should do this. Cause I was very on the fence and, you know, not, I wasn't really going to do it. And then she said, no, you really should do it. So I, I really credit her with my follow through. She got her family who lives in Halifax to come and greet me at the finish line. And so they brought cookies and bells and it was such a kind of, perfect and symbolic end to it because again it was like this connection that i made back in march um and this jess and her friends were just so supportive of of this dream of mine and so it felt it felt very appropriate and special and symbolic and so we were all just there huddled you know in the pouring hurricane rain at like 10 30 p.m <laughs> that sounds kind of amazing and you I mean you, you're talking about all these people who have come together to help you along yeah journey and that's really incredible right this sense of community across canada and the way that people have really responded to this are they responding to the cause in the same way that they responded to the bike ride itself this idea that we need to have better access for mental health services for youth is that something that 
people also responded to in the same way uh, that they did the physical act of biking across Canada? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. And I like to think that the response is to both because they go together well, because like the reason I chose the bike ride is because I thought given that I'm a novice, that it would mirror sort of the struggles that families are facing when, when they are faced with such uncertainty in navigating the healthcare system and not really knowing what's on the other side of like their next move. So that's, that's the reason I chose the bike ride and I really wanted it to be a metaphor. And I think the response has been a, because people know that kids and parents should have access to high quality mental health care. Like most that resonates with most people. And it's been consistent from city to city. When you tell people like, this is why I'm doing this, they either start crying or they tell you a story about someone they know who couldn't get care. So that seems to resonate. And I guess the idea of taking a step in uncertainty also seems to resonate. So I like to think that it's, that it's both. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, I'm thinking tomorrow, we're speaking today on Monday, and tomorrow, Tuesday, the uh, 10th of October is World Mental Health Day. The theme of World Mental Health Day this year is that mental health is a universal human right and that it needs to be treated as such. And I think intrinsically, we all know that that's the case, but we just don't have the structures in place to make that a reality. And what you're doing is really calling attention to that and bringing together a sort of cross-country community to say that, yes, this is something that we need to do. And that brings me to the next thing. You have one more finish line to cross, which is your fundraising finish line. I know that when you started this, you had a fundraising goal that you hit very early on. And so you decided to uh, expand that goal some. Where are you right now with your fundraising goal and uh, how close are you to your final finish line? Yeah. We're about 80% there. So we're just under $40,000 and the goal is 50,000. So um, the fundraiser will end on October 22nd. So we've still got some time to, yeah, to reach the last 10,000. So I'm trying to think of some creative ways to raise money either, you know, by doing talks or reaching out to, to businesses, but yeah, we're, we're almost there. And I'm very surprised by that because yeah, like, like you said, my first goal was 10,000, but now that I see how this has resonated and now that I think I have a little bit more confidence in, in just saying like, okay, this is a problem. We should do something about this. I don't have all the answers, but we, we want to be moving in the direction of a solution. I, I am kind of determined to see if we can hit the 50. Great. Well, we were, we'll put the uh, link for people in the show notes of this podcast. Uh, people can go and donate uh, to Dr. DiGiacomo's uh, cause and hopefully help to reach that $50,000. Now, when we spoke earlier, and we spoke when you were about halfway through, you were adding a new charity as you entered each new province. So you couldn't talk about all the charities that you had chosen. I'm wondering if there are a few that you might like to highlight now, some of the ones in each individual province who are doing this work to bring uh, high quality mental health care to kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the one in, in New Brunswick, uh, Gentle Path Counseling Center, um, is wonderful. So they actually in recent years have noticed the needs specifically for kids and teens and their parents. And so they have um, launched this new program 
called the Crow's Nest. So that's the New Brunswick charity. Um, and, and I got to meet them all, which was really, it's always nice when you get to meet people from the charity. So because it gives you some added, you know, confidence that, okay, these people know what they're doing and they're off to the races. And so that was awesome. And then in Quebec, oh man, I'm, I don't, I'm going to say the name wrong, but Jeune Tet, I think is the name. Okay. Um, and they're also really wonderful because they on their website have, um, very clever kind of online resources as well for kids and teens and parents. So yeah, there, there've been a few that, that have stood out and um, also some, some local CMHA ones that I've chosen. So I've been really happy with all of them so far, you know, actually we're still, I'm still looking for um, Nunavut one. Right. Yeah. And it's just hard. It's just very, very in some of these places, it's, it's actually really hard to find anything. So I'm still looking. The territories are quite difficult for things of that nature, Mm -hmm. because so often it's an organization that exists outside of the territory who tries to provide sort of satellite services. Right. And uh, yeah. So something local is quite difficult. Yeah. And like potentially impossible, which then, you know, got us talking about, well, maybe, maybe we make a new charity or something so that we can be very confident that there are funds going directly to kids who need these services. So it's, it's, it's opened up a lot of new questions and a lot of new things to consider. All right. So are those now that, I mean, it seems like every time that uh, you reach a certain goal or you have some sort of epiphany or you're creating a whole new project, uh, is that, is that where you're going to go from here? Do you have a pile of new projects uh, on the horizon or are you just sort of going to rest on your laurels for at least a few weeks having completed such a remarkable thing? Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, I think I do need to rest a little bit like that for sure. Yes. But, and I don't know if this sounds cliche, but I think um, when you do something out of the ordinary for you or, or out of character, I guess it, it just opens up opportunities that you didn't think were there. And so for me, what I've noticed is I really have enjoyed this a lot more than I thought. And I think it's something about the, the sense that you're working towards a goal with other people. There's a sense of urgency. There's like a sense of purpose. Um, and there's just this genuine desire to make things better, like on a bigger scale. So I think that I do have some more projects <laughs> only because it's it, like, it just, this has felt very in line with my values and also very in line with, I guess, my temperament and my personality and that that's exciting. So yeah, I think this is going to be the end, you know, Right. Well, please uh, let us know when you start the next chapter and uh, some other new project. We'd be happy to have you back on to talk about that. In the meantime, just congratulations on uh, having finished this. I'm hoping you can give me sort of an overall sense of the trip compared to what your expectations were going in. I know it was really scary at the beginning. Obviously, it ended up being quite scary at the end. In between, you met so many great people and saw so much of Canada. What are some of the overall impressions that you have that maybe something that surprised you? Overall, I would say it was so much more amazing than I expected. Some magical thing happened from, um, you know, from Vancouver to Halifax that 
has honestly it's made me feel really alive really and really excited so it was overall it was way better than i expected and interestingly physically i think it was easier than i expected which is just wild to me so yeah i guess it just goes to show like you don't you really can't predict how something like this is gonna go and you and and you don't know what's on the other side of uncertainty and sometimes it's actually better than you thought it is wild to me that you say that it was physically easier than you anticipated i mean i'm speaking as somebody who very often sits here in the cold because walking all the way upstairs to get a sweater seems like a lot of work so uh you know to me it just strikes me that physically that would have been such a demanding thing and it's amazing to hear you say that it could be because i'm my ex expectations were that I would be dead every day, you know, so that's maybe had something to do with it. Yeah. And I mean, is there a sort of momentum that builds? I mean, you get through one day and you go, okay, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought. I'm still feeling okay. Uh, The next day I wake up and I'm a little bit fresh and I'll keep going in there, that kind of momentum. And if so, does that momentum stop at some point, right? That you've had a really, really rough day. Do you wake up and go, I just don't want to keep going. I can't do this anymore. And you force yourself into it. Okay. That's an excellent, you are, you ask excellent questions because what I've just realized. So momentum is a key word here. Momentum is a key word. And I think what it is, is you just get so much data. There are so many data points from day one to day 42 and the, um, like the summary, the take home message from all of those data points is that you get through it. You actually can do it. Like there, you know, okay. So maybe there's a day here and there that like the crosswinds are so bad. So you have to take a break, whatever. But the, like the overall message that you can see right in front of you day after day is like, you can do it. You can get through it. You can do more than you think, which is so cliche. But then when you see it right in front of your eyes, it is, it's very emboldening. And it's the momentum doesn't really stop. Like I've been stopped for three weeks and I'm still very stoked. So (laughs) yeah, like I, who knew it's it's so funny because you talk about these things in therapy all the time. Like action is better than inaction. Um, Take a step and then see what, you know, see how that galvanizes some energy and some hope. But it turns out it's very true and on a large scale. And you took a step on a very large scale. You managed to complete the journey recently, 42 days on a bike, truly incredible. And thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story and a bit of your journey with us uh, here on Mindful. Eric, I always love talking with you. Thank you so much. If you missed out on following Dr. DiGiacomo in real time as she shared her journey on Instagram, it's well worth following her now and going back to revisit it. A lot of terrific little videos that show what cycling on the Trans-Canada Highway actually looks like, tons of really insightful epiphanies and ideas she had along the way, and it's a great way to get a sense of the community that rallied to her support and the one she built through this incredible effort. We've put our Instagram page in the show notes along with the page to donate. You can go there to read more about each of the deserving charities Alex chose as she rode through the 10 Canadian provinces. Thanks to Alex not only for taking on this remarkable challenge, but also for taking the time to speak with me about it. And thanks to you at home for listening, streaming, downloading, and reviewing this episode. Mindful is written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bowman. Our producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.